Welcome to Chromodiversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of the Chromodiversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. The story you're about to hear, Growing Up With Michael, is still raw and could be triggering for some. If you're sensitive to disturbing content, you may wish to stop listening here. In this first episode of two, you'll hear a father's heartbreaking account of the loss of his son, Michael, diagnosed with an extra X at the age of 24, found dead earlier this year at the age of 37. Michael's father is Gary Gleesman, a highly respected senior healthcare executive who started his career as a registered nurse. Few people have made a bigger difference for thousands of families and individuals living with chromodiversity than Gary. From 2017 to 21, he was the chairman of AXIS, formerly called KSNA, the leading parent advocacy association for X and Y chromosome variations. I'm proud to say Gary is also a member of the Chromodiversity Foundation Global Advisory Board. As you can imagine, this was not an easy conversation to have. The reason Gary has agreed to speak out is to convey a simple message, that the absence of systematic early detection, intervention, and support of common genetic differences comes at an unacceptably high cost to many other individuals and families around the world. In this episode, you'll hear how his son Michael was diagnosed with an extra X, what he was like growing up as a child, the challenges he faced as an adult, and the circumstances of his death. Hello, Gary. Thank you for being here today. Glad I had an opportunity to uh, do this, Elliot. Happy to share our story with as many people as possible. How old was your son, Michael, when you first found out that he had a genetic difference and how did you find out? We did not receive a formal diagnosis about his Kleinfelder condition until he was 24. At the time, he was in a court-ordered rehab program for alcohol abuse and addiction, and he was doing well there. But then they discovered that he had taken money from the halfway house where he was living and the court placed him back in jail. His psychiatrist at the time was pretty confused at this impulsive behavior since he had been doing so well for the previous nine to 10 months. And actually, he was the one that suggested we get a genetic test for Kleinfelter syndrome, which then came back positive. So he was pretty old when we finally found out. And the previous 15 years, 17 years, we had been down uh, many different roads trying to figure out why he had so many challenges with different types of situations, primarily revolving around executive decision-making and that type of thing. What was Michael like? Great kid, right? Absolutely true. I mean, it speaks to the fact that they weren't picking up signals that looking in retrospect, you could see now. Uh, at those ages, he struggled with developing speech skills, and we had him enrolled in a speech program that basically got him caught up in about a year, which you know was great because then he was ready to pretty much enter school and do well. So you know he was happy, easy, cheerful kid, very uh, much involved with all the family functions. And as he continued to age through beginning school periods, first, second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, he was pretty much right there with his peer group. He struggled with developing social relationships. He didn't read other people as well as his peer group did. And so 
he would become a target at times for being manipulated or being bullied. Kids do that at those ages. And so you don't think too much about it. It's just your kid's a little bit different than the rest of them, but everything else is working fine. So, you know, he was an easy kid to raise at those younger ages. As he continued to progress through school, he struggled at times with meeting some of the academic expectations. He did really well with anything art related. He was a very creative kid. We've got a number of walls in our house filled with his artwork from high school. He's got very, very high marks on that. He never felt like he had any real talent. So unfortunately, he didn't pursue it. And we didn't stimulate it much. He eventually turned that creativity and interest in cars, which most teenage boys, you know, certainly develop at some point. And he became a really an automotive paint restoration specialist. And he was an absolute master with that. He could take a beat up car and make it look like it had a $25,000 paint job and ended up developing his own business, working on exotic and high value cars to restore them to uh, you know top condition. Um, you know, he made it through becoming an Eagle Scout, which doesn't happen very often uh, in the in the scouting world. Less than five percent of scouts become eagles, and so he was he was pretty proud of that accomplishment. So, I mean, he he had interest in where he was able to take advantage of doing something with those interests. He excelled. The things that made it difficult is he continued to have difficulty with staying organized and managing his finances and taking care of his various medical conditions. It's the rest of the world that demanded that he become accomplished in everything, that things fell apart for him. In hindsight, would you say that some of the challenges he was having making executive decisions may have been due to the fact that he had a chromosomal difference? Oh, there's there's absolutely no question about it. I mean, one, one key element that virtually most health professionals are certainly aware of is that Kleinfelder syndrome guys don't produce testosterone. And consequently, when they enter puberty, their bodies are not producing a, a very necessary substance that has a lot to do with their emotional and psychological stability. So the fact that he was deprived of that particular chemical led him to eventually start to try and figure out how to self-treat it himself. And then that led to the addictive behavior using alcohol. And so there's no question that the fact that he was not diagnosed at a young age had a tremendous impact on his situation, you know, plus the fact that we lost all the opportunity for developmental support and developmental intervention uh, at critical ages where kids that are one, two, three, four, and five can really benefit from controlled intervention that is designed to help kind of build those executive skills. How did it make you feel when you found out? Well, certainly, you know, we were thankful. We finally had a diagnosis after years and years of searching for answers and many evaluations and treatments and medications. But that also made me pretty angry that it had taken 20 years to figure this out. And, and it's simply not unusual for Kleinfelder syndrome kids and families, often called the diagnostic odyssey. More than 95% of health professionals do not consider testing for KS, even when they're presented with multiple common characteristics that can be part of the condition. And it's very, very frustrating. So much of the health professional world just simply doesn't have it on their list for screening. That's why almost 70% or more of Kleinfelder kids are not diagnosed until they're adults. 
you know, a lot of these kids just don't present with anything so obvious that would get the attention of a health professional saying, we really need to do some genetic testing on this kid. When you found out, what were you told? It's kind of ironic because I was personally acquainted with the director of genetics at our local university medical center and had worked with him in various capacities for a number of years. So we had immediate access to the source of diagnostic testing. And so I fully expected to be able to sit down and get more in-depth information from him after we received the actual diagnosis. I was pretty disappointed in the result. I mean, he met with me personally and brought in the papers they had in their offices on Kleinfelder syndrome. And basically these were papers that were approximately 15 years old and just more or less talked about the inability for these guys to produce testosterone and that they should receive supplemental testosterone administration. He suggested I continue to work with psychiatrists and other mental health professionals to learn about behavior management that we were dealing with at the time. And that was pretty much it. I mean, he really didn't have any place to send me, to refer me, to help me get in touch with researchers. We were pretty much left on our own to find out more information that we needed. It's just amazing looking back now with one out of 600 male births, you know, that potentially have this condition. It's just, I, I don't understand. I, I, I've not understood for the last 20 years why uh, the health professions have just not picked up on this better. What do you understand today about this genetic difference that's different from the information you had at the time? It's almost impossible to describe. And I, I understand more current research has been done in the last, especially the last five, six, seven years. But all that was known in 08, see, other than maybe one specialized center uh, out in Denver, Colorado, is that his body didn't produce testosterone and he was not able to have kids. And then he might have some learning challenges and issues with being impulsive. What we know today is so much further beyond that. The research into neurobiological function, neurodevelopment, brain anatomy and function, the health challenges with metabolic syndrome and blood clots and potential cardiac and lung function and ADD and executive function. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And, and not all of it's negative. There are many strengths associated with Kleinfelder syndrome that include things like creativity and curiosity and perseverance and kindness and social intelligence and fairness. There's just a lot of very positive things that can be emphasized with these guys uh, that they can bring on as their strengths. So if we would have known about this when he was younger and been able to provide the effective support he so badly needed, both medical and, and enabling and promoting his strengths, things would have been much, much, much different than what we, where we ended up, you know, at age 24 with the diagnosis. How did you end up becoming a leading advocate in the U.S. for Kleinfelters and the Association for X and Y Chromosome Variations? As I talked about, I discovered very early that the medical and educational professionals really didn't understand XXY. They had little information or support to provide. I was fortunate and discovered an advocacy organization in 2009 called KSNA, uh, which stood for Knowledge, Support, and Action, that seemed to have some resources that would help families and individuals, but they had very limited funding and just one part-time staff 
but I became involved with their listserv, which was kind of the, the social media at the time that people would use to stay in contact with each other. And I met a number of very helpful families and individuals that shared their practical information and offered suggestions. I didn't understand why there wasn't more professional resources more accessible and resolved to kind of learn more about the condition and assist the group to develop more and better information. Those volunteer efforts eventually led to an invitation to join the board in 2012. And I was then appointed the board chair in 2017. I continued in that role until our son started having more serious health and personal challenges. And I had to switch my focus to that to help support him more. So I resigned the board chair position, but I still remain active in various board projects and on the social media groups where I can help provide new research information for people. A few months ago, we were scheduled to speak, you and I, as we often do, about how to further our common cause, when I received an email from you with heartbreaking news. In the email you wrote, sorry to say, I won't be able to make this call. They found our son dead yesterday. What happened? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Michael really struggled with his self-treatment addictions. And we have attributed this to having Kleinfelder's uh, as, as an influence and the fact that he never received adequate or effective treatment when he was younger. The mental health people tried a lot of different behavior meds, but they were not all aware that he was XXY, so none of them really worked. Michael later became seriously addicted to opiates after a two-month ICU hospitalization where he was kept on a ventilator and kidney dialysis and in kind of a semi-coma state for, for that period of time. We tried to explain those addictions and his problems with that, but the health professionals just pretty much ignored it. They were obsessed with keeping him in this coma state while he was on the ventilator. And then sadly, they later prescribed oxycodone for pain relief after his release that he quickly became addicted to. And additional rehab treatment programs didn't help. He eventually started using IV heroin and then buying counterfeit opiates on the street. Many of us know now these are often laced with fentanyl. He had several occasions where he was found unconscious and not breathing. We tried to convince him not to use when he was alone, but he just didn't fully understand the risk. Again, part of that executive decision-making skill, he just didn't think something bad would happen. After he was released from jail this past June, he moved back in with us and we thought things were better, but unfortunately, as we discovered, they weren't. And he had purchased more counterfeit drugs one day and used it when he was in his truck in a parking lot and died that same day. I'll add one additional thing to that that still makes me very angry today. During the six months he was in jail, he did not get one minute of rehab support. He was not allowed to attend any AA or NA meetings and had no mental health counseling. It was a completely wasted six months. And I still maintain the prison system contributed to his decision to continue using after he was released. They were simply only there to punish him. So, you know, it was just a sequence of events that culminated in, in this unnecessary premature death that could have been avoided from so many different ways, and it just simply wasn't. His drug addiction started from the prescription by doctors right. prescribing 
strong opiates. That's absolutely true. And, and there's just so many ridiculous regulations within the system. For instance, Nebraska, where we live, requires all physicians to report all medications they are prescribing for people. But on the flip side, they are not required to check the drug registry base to see if someone's obtaining drugs from multiple physicians. So he quickly discovered he could get almost an unlimited supply of opiates from multiple physicians around the community and nobody would stop him. So while they might not prescribe huge amounts at any single time, if you're seeing six, seven, eight, nine different physicians, you can get as much as you want. And so his inability to self-control and understand how much risk he was putting himself in, he just didn't, didn't make any good decisions about it. Once he knew he could make himself feel differently with these opiates, the game was pretty much over at that point. Drug addiction problems in certainly in our state, if not the entire country, are looked at from a criminal lens. They're basically punished, but they're not rehabilitated. And so the recidivism rate for people coming out of prison with drug-related offenses is close to 70 or 80 percent because they get no effective intervention while they're in prison and then go right back to the same lifestyle they have that got them into prison in the first place. The circumstances where uh, you mix in a genetic condition that already struggles with mental health and behavior types of issues is just a perfect storm. They're going to end up in prison and then not get any treatment and then put right back on the streets again to continue doing whatever it was they were doing that got them there in the, in the first place. The problem that we have is that the court systems will say they have programs to help people with minor drug offenses, and even sometimes at the felony level drug offenses, that will divert them from having to go to prison. And that indeed happened with our son. Uh, it was with alcohol in the beginning that he was allowed to go into a court diversion program rather than go to jail. Uh, the problem is that uh, once they go through that program, and he completed his successfully and did quite well for well, at least a year or so, the fact if they if they have a relapse and start using again uh, and get themselves in trouble again, they're denied entry back into those diversion programs. So even though he was well qualified and would have done well in that diversion program, the court system wouldn't allow him access back into it because he'd already been through it once, which is just a ridiculous, a ridiculous attitude to have because as so many people that work with people with addictions will tell you, uh, it can take sometimes four, five, six, maybe seven rehab experiences before something finally clicks with them to be able to help them move into a different lifestyle. So the fact that they're artificially prevented from being able to access that program just, again, sets them up for total defeat. Do you think there should be specific protections for people who have been diagnosed with extra chromosomes based on medical understanding and contemporary understanding of what these differences may mean? There's no question. If you want to look for a program that has taken that attitude that seems to be doing quite well, there's a program in Australia called Section 32 that kind of requires the courts to consider 
people with genetic differences or disabilities that can be defined through medical diagnoses. The ability to uh, seek out and get different treatment rather than the standard, you're going to prison for six, nine, 12 months, years, whatever. There's an entire body of knowledge that has been produced by this program in Australia that they're having great success with. The challenge with Kleinfelders and some of these other genetic conditions is that the systems in the U.S., for instance, are designed to help courts work with people that have that meet certain criteria. So if your IQ is below 65 or you have other serious disabilities, the courts will find ways to be able to work with you that don't automatically just put you in prison. The problem with Kleinfelders and other genetic differences is that many of these kids don't meet those criteria. It's a broad phenotype, it's a broad spectrum, and some have serious problems, many do not have serious problems at all, and many have just a combination of things that make it difficult for them to work and function in the real world without some level of support, which could be very minimal, but nevertheless necessary. The courts just aren't there. They look at their definition, and if you don't meet their definition, you don't qualify. End of story. listening to the second of two episodes about growing up with Michael, with his father Gary Gleesman. In the first part of our conversation, Gary told the story of the loss of his son Michael, diagnosed with an extra X at the age of 24 and found dead earlier this year at the age of 37. In the second part, you'll hear important, unvarnished recommendations for parents and policymakers. The episode concludes with a eulogy to Michael found in his truck shortly before his death, as written by Michael himself. What advice would you give to parents who've just learned that their child or future child has an extra chromosome? I have gotten to be much more vocal with parents and families, urging them to become advocates for their kids and to teach their kids to become self-advocates because they're just simply not gonna get it from the health professionals. The health professionals are not aware of these conditions. They're not aware of how they need to be supported. They look at only their narrow portion of medical issues that might be associated, but certainly anything involved with neurodevelopmental or, or neurobiological or just executive skill function, they aren't there. And so the schools follow the medical professionals without having clear guidance from that sector, there's only one chance. And, and that's if families become very, very familiar with the current research that's being done with brain function with a lot of these kids. And the idea of things that can be done at very, very young ages that will help them develop better some of the skills that they may be struggling with. And some of them may not need it at all. Some of them may be able to adjust to adapting in the real world in the right set of circumstances that they don't need those kinds of supports. But I would venture to guess that at the end of the day, 90% or more, just as they found that a high percentage of Kleinfelder kids need some remedial speech and language intervention to get them to catch up to 
their peer groups and, and again, emphasize the catch up to. It's not that they can't function in those areas, it's they need to learn a little bit differently and have more exposure to uh, support that will allow them to develop the skills that they're trying to develop. And the same thing holds true for executive skill function, for social and emotional development, for all these areas that are so difficult to objectively measure by the health professions. Uh, if parents focus on that and understand what can be done at early ages and more or less become very assertive and demand from the health professionals and the educational professionals that my kid's fine. He may, he, he may not learn the same as the rest of the kids that you're seeing, but he can do quite well with the right amount, with the right support. And until parents start kind of demanding that type of response from the professions, they're going to have a struggle, you know, trying to find help. Where can parents go to learn how to be such advocates? Fortunately, there are specialty clinics for XXY and other sex chromosome aneuploidies develop around the country, approximately a dozen of them now available. And that doesn't make it easy for everyone to have access to, but I would certainly highly recommend parents do whatever it takes to get their kids fully evaluated at one of these specialty clinics, because at that point, they'll have a working document that they can take back to their local providers and say, look, this is where my kid's at. This is the types of things he needs assistance with. And we're going to design a program locally that will provide that for him. So that's my preferred method of suggesting that parents get professional help from one of these specialty clinics. Short of that, there's accessible documents published now by various research teams around the country and around the world that talk about how important it can be for especially younger Kleinfelder kids to be exposed to some of this developmental work. The information is out there. It's just some parents need more help than others in terms of, of trying to access, you know, and understand what it means and then interpret that to professionals that are not on top of things yet. What recommendations would you give to doctors? There's a continuing medical education course that we, uh, the AXIS organization has released on their website that is free to physicians that is basically a, a Kleinfelter primer so that they understand what some of the current research is showing at this point. And it needs to be updated even more now, especially with the neurodevelopmental research that's come out of some of these special research groups. That still seems to be uh, the, the big, in my mind, the big missing piece. Doctors can somewhat deal with the medical issues and they can become familiar with the, some of the medical challenges that can come along with Kleinfelders, but they are woefully inadequate when it comes down to behavioral types of stuff. At best, they would make a referral to a psychiatrist or a mental health professional who also isn't going to know very much, if anything, about Kleinfelders. And so again, we'll be very limited help and they'll try and push parents and kids down a traditional road of, of either medication or maybe some talk therapy, but they, they don't understand the developmental needs of these kids. So the fact that exists in the state that it does right now 
just back to looking at the parents again of saying, we've got to get all these families educated and they've got to go in and sort of demand from these physicians to get up to the same level. You know, there's articles, there's research papers, there's CME training. It's a big leap from the research, the research clinics into common ordinary day-to-day -day practice. And it's gonna take years, you know, for physicians to get to that level all the way back to getting more information to them while they're going through medical school, even. They get maybe a day on genetics in their medical school training, and that's just completely inadequate. It isn't enough. So again, you know, we're back to the parents being the advocates of saying, I'm not willing to accept the fact there's nothing that can be done. If there was one piece of research you'd like to see done in the future, um, what would it be about? Again, I would say a lot is known about the medical and health related issues with pine fillers, and it's not, it's still not ideal because they still don't know why there's a predisposition to developing blood clots, for instance, or that the fact that these guys can be very at risk with different metabolic conditions and prone to developing diabetes. A lot of that information still needs to have further research, but at the end of the day, the brain is still the key organ for me. They don't understand enough about it. They don't have programs to support families and kids, and they just need to get better at it. And thank goodness we've got some research specialists around the world, again, like I mentioned earlier, that are doing the research on this that are coming up with very specific programs now of saying, we know this condition exists. We know they have a high disposition to developing attention deficit disorder types of issues. Um, here are things that can be done starting at age one, two, three, and four that will help prevent this from developing and maybe not end up having it as an issue at all. Do you have a favorite memory of Michael and how would you like him to be remembered? He was such a great kid and a great character and was just impacted by this self-treatment of opiate addiction. It was a small part, but a major influence on his life. And so the rest of his life was, he was a strong family kid, um, involved with the church, involved with scouts, and great social relationships. I was surprised at his funeral. Probably half of his senior class that he graduated with showed up or sent personal notes about how shocked they were and how much he had helped them uh, during his time in high school uh, just by being a really good friend. And so that, that, that really struck home with me because we didn't have a complete idea of, of all of his personal relationships and the fact that so many of them 20 years after graduation still had these strong memories of all the positive things he had tried to help them with during his time in school that created a very strong memory for us. Is there any one message you'd like to convey to policymakers or anyone who might be in a position to back much wider support in order to achieve the change that we need in this area? Uh, there's no question that is absolutely critical that all kids get tested for these basic genetic differences at birth. I mean, there's just, 
that would have changed the trajectory so much for our son and would for any family. I know there's concern about families, how they'll react to getting that information. And part of the challenge is that so many health professionals don't understand the condition and so consequently are not going to be in a position to be able to provide the best information or best advice to some of these families. So step one is getting them educated, uh, all the geneticists and the OBGYN and the, the primary care physicians aware of what these conditions really mean and current research, and then making sure that all kids are tested and results released to the parents so that they can start being aware of things that they will need to become familiar with and be able to work with their sons and other professionals around them. In my mind, there's just no substitute for that. The cost of it is not out of reach at all. In fact, they're talking about having $100 and $200 genomic tests now that can be done with kids after birth. And so for a cost of that versus the hundreds and thousands of dollars that we spent over decades of trying to find answers for our son, there's there's just no comparison. Top it off with the premature death of someone that didn't simply need to happen. There's no trade-off. These policymakers have got to get over the challenges of trying to get the rest of the world acquainted with them and then making sure that information is available and then offering these tests to families as these kids are born so they are aware at a very early age that it may exist and there may be some intervention that they have to do. Couldn't one say, well, why don't we just wait until we see if in a person issues come up and then we can deal with them. I understand and I understand their limited view of what can be effective. The fact that it doesn't cost very much at all and it can have a profound impact on kids if it's addressed at younger ages. They cannot wait until somebody hits puberty and then expect to be able to step, step in and be able to have the best results from neurodevelopmental work, it's too late. You know, they can't do anything at that particular. It's like knowing that someone in their 30s might develop a fatal medical condition because of their genetic makeup, but there's something that could be done when they were young to prevent that from happening. So are we going to wait until they actually show that they're going to develop that fatality and not be able to do anything about it at the time? Or do you spend a little bit of money and prevent it from happening at all. It's faulty logic. It doesn't make any sense that they would risk putting someone in a situation where they are going to die prematurely or really have incredible struggles and spend tens of thousands of dollars in ineffective medical care because someone doesn't know that they have this particular genetic condition. It, it just, it, it defies logic. But it's also how governments often work. So we've got to make a convincing argument and people on the other side in policymaking positions have got to understand that they're making an investment at that particular point that could have profound impact on a whole hundreds of thousands of people. It's estimated that there's something like 600,000 or more Kleinfelder guys um, in the United States alone. So worldwide, it's in the millions. And it's not just a U.S. issue. It's, it's in every country. 
And so we're talking about uh, an impact that could have tremendous uh, effect on, on a lot of people's lives. And perhaps even in shorter time frames, because you were saying earlier how important it is today for parents to be very strong advocates for their children and for those children as they grow up to learn to be advocates for themselves. However, the pressure that this puts on families to coordinate multiple health healthcare providers to preempt issues that they need to educate themselves about as if they were a highly competent medical professional at the same time they have their own jobs and possibly other siblings to take care of even the best of parents let's say might be very challenged by this so in what you've just said isn't there also a benefit by early diagnosis early intervention and good information to reduce the burden and improve quality of life, not only of those children and their futures as adults, but also of families in general and communities in general. Absolutely no question. The amount of time and effort necessary from families to be able to access and obtain the help that their kid may need that has a genetic condition would be reduced by 80%, maybe 90% versus what we see out here today. I was fortunate enough to have a healthcare background so I could get into managing, you know, as a team leader, all of the various specialties and issues that our son needed to get assistance with. 95% or more of families out there aren't going to have that skill set. So the road is even harder and longer for them. And, and you're absolutely right, Elliot. I mean, they, they're going to have to give up something, you know, to be able to figure out how to educate themselves and then how to negotiate the system. And that's just a huge waste of time. You know, it's going to take them away from other family, from their jobs, from their role as husband or wife. You end up having to dedicate yourself to making sure your kid's going to get what they need. And there's no question in my mind that 99% of the families we're talking about will do that if they're aware and, and if that's what they're presented with. They're, they'll take the energy and time and effort to do it because they want their kid to have a good life. There's very little doubt that they would take the effort to make it happen, but it's not necessary. They could get help and support from so many different ways, and it's just not, it's not there yet, but we're going to keep pounding on it. I have a few um, last questions for you that I've asked people who have chromosomal differences. And since we're talking about growing up with Michael, I think it's only fair I ask them of you. There are questions from uh, James Lipton used to ask on the actor's studio. What's your favorite word? Truth. What's your least favorite word? Hatred. What makes you happy? Basically, honesty and sincerity from wherever. Both of those are very strong characteristics I look for in, in anybody I, I deal with. What sound do you love? I'm a thunderstorm kind of guy. I like thunderstorms. <laughs> so when it storms, you normally can find me sitting outside under a roof somewhere watching the lightning and listening to thunder. What sound do you hate or dislike? 
As you, I think you know, I was trained as a registered nurse and spent a number of years working in the clinical environment in hospitals, both with adults and kids. And I have to say, listening to people crying out in pain is just something that I have a hard time with that, of not being able to do something to be able to make that better. So yeah, crying in pain. What's your favorite curse word? Bullshit. <laughs> I use it probably more often than my wife would like me to, but sometimes it's just the perfect word for describing situations. And it relates to your favorite word of truth. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. What profession other than yours would you have liked to attempt? You know, I would have enjoyed being an accomplished writer. I enjoy writing and, and sharing information with people. And if I could have been fiction or a nonfiction writer, I, I would have pursued that if I thought I could make any money at it. <laughs> what profession um, would you not like to have attempted? Politics, without a doubt. We need more people that want to be involved in that area so because it has such huge implications. But the environment that it is now, I, there's no way I, I'd be able to stand. I wouldn't last a, a day. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm not absolutely convinced that's the direction I'll be going, but if it is, uh, the best thing I could expect to hear from him is uh, a statement that I was right. <laughs> whatever, whatever it was, I was right. That's brilliant, Gary. Thank you so much. In loving memory of Michael, here is the eulogy that was found in his truck shortly after his death, as written by Michael himself. Michael was born July 5, 1984, to parents Gary and Paula Gleesman in Omaha, Nebraska. Survived by his parents, grandmother Joan Gleesman Pistello, aunt Lisa Jensen and uncle Mark Armstrong, aunt Cindy Gleesman, loving family Chris and Sarah Short and children, and Kelly Warner and children. Preceded in death by both grandfathers, Henry Gleesman and Kenneth Jensen, grandmother Edith Jensen, and his beloved cat and dog, Manyard and Max. Michael was a proud Eagle Scout and a graduate of Brownwell Talbot, class of 2002, and had an associate degree from Metro Tech. He struggled with addiction most of his adult life, but was currently on a much better path, living at home with his parents and searching for inner peace. He was a kind and gentle soul and will be greatly missed by all of his friends and family. Thank you for listening to the two episodes with Gary Gleesman about growing up with Michael. As you heard, the absence of systematic early detection, intervention, and support can come at high cost to many individuals and families. As a result, Gary calls for parents to be assertive advocates for the needs of their children from early age onwards and to demand better support. At the same time, he calls for policymakers to invest in systematic early detection, information, and intervention. Possibly the single biggest takeaway is that the right kind of support has the potential to change and save lives at scale 
with benefits likely to far outweigh costs. Tune in next week for another conversation about growing up with chromodiversity and have a wonderful day.